everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg, your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hello, Times Will Tell listeners. We are speaking to Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff today. CEO of the Fuchsburg Jerusalem Center and, for the purposes of this interview, the newly minted author of About Man and God and Law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Jessica. I'm glad to be with you. Very, very happy to have you with us. So, Stephen, as you say in your introduction, here comes another book about Bob Dylan, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) I really laughed out loud. Um, and you've probably read many of them, I imagine, or certainly a number of them. But what I wanted to know is, okay, tell me how this book came to be. How many years have you been thinking about this? How long have you been a Bob Dylan fan? Wow. So first of all, I would say that yes, admittedly, my bookshelf is heavily weighted to the Dylan direction, but that did not happen at the beginning of my interest in rock and roll or in Dylan. That took a while. Oh, that's okay. To, yeah. You know, fair enough. But I just, yeah. you know, when we do the, you know, when we do the, uh, here's you here where I stand and I say, hello, my name is Stephen. Yes, I am obsessed with Bob Dylan, you know, and you say, <laughs> thank you, Stephen. We love you, Stephen. You'll know that the book obsession started later. That's all. Um, look, I, I, I think that uh, from the, from the, uh, beginning of my interest in music and I was in band since I was a kid and uh, obsessively listening to music and worked as a professional musician for about a decade Dylan was always in the mix but I didn't really start thinking about Dylan as a topic of uh, response and study actually until I moved to Israel and I was uh, at Beit Midrash Elul um, sure. in the late in the 90s and I started to work in the field of kind of rock and roll midrash, right? So that's the doing the commentary on the on the sacred texts of rock and roll. And obviously, if you're going to go to the sacred texts of rock and roll, you're going to go to Dylan. So Clearly. I found backup for that in um, the books I started reading about Dylan and rock and roll. And I found that as I got more interested in it, just the trend lines in how society dealt with popular music were changing also. So now the library of the music section in whatever's left of bookstores is is one of the larger uh, libraries outside of sort of fiction and I guess self-help, right? Interesting, so, really. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly biographies. Um, for this particular book, I can say that I really felt strongly that a book about Dylan and really about rock and roll in general of this kind had not yet been written. It did feel like there was a, a niche, there was a gap, there was a lacuna there that um, I could fill that would be of use, right? That would be of yes, use to yes, music yes. fans, people who are interested in religion, people who are interested in spirituality. And um, like many people, when life slowed to almost a halt for the reasons of corona, um, I uh, decided that I was in between projects and I started a podcast that we can talk about, and the podcast was meant to inspire a book, and it happened. And now the podcast is in its third season, and the book is coming out on May 3rd. Wow. So you were very productive during the, let's say, the height of the pandemic. 
at some elements of my life and at others less productive, right? Fair enough. I was very productive with junk food as well, but that doesn't really count for much. <laughs> I ate a lot of croissants, so yeah. <laughs> and I did make sourdough. So there you have it. There yes, you go. we all had our areas of productivity yeah, for sure. That's right. Okay. But let's step back a little bit then to you as a musician and to you and your clear love. And you said, I think you said obsession with Bob Dylan. Maybe you didn't say obsession. You did. Okay. So talk to us a little bit about Bob Dylan and Bob Dylan's music for you. What, what is that about? What, what is at the root of it? Um, What does it, who does, what does it, what does he mean to you? Yeah. You know, Dylan was definitely present in my house growing up along with the Beatles and the band and the Moody Blues and Bruce Springsteen, because my father uh, is a big music fan. So I inherited from him a record collection that really was kind of the playlist for classic rock circa, you know, whatever. Um, and um, for me, I think that uh, for me and for, for many people, um, Dylan uh, captures a place that... Um, lives between uh, poetry and rock and roll and uh, religion. Um, it took a little while to get into it because truthfully, I was much more into Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen. You do mention Bruce Springsteen. You mentioned Bruce Springsteen quite a few times. Look, Jessica, I'm from Cleveland. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> you, you, you know, if you're, you know, a white dude of a certain age from Cleveland, Ohio, it's kind of a thing. Right, because that was one of Bruce Springsteen's big cities in the in the seventies and eighties when I was uh, coming of age as a as a musical uh, person, uh, and and I think for Dylan and and me in our uh, our journey together that he knows nothing about and 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 I know all of this about right, it's um, it really has remained that nexus of things that are really important to me, um, the written word, the heard word, music. Um, and the book is about sort of, for me, the key issues of our time, maybe of any time, and how Dylan frames them, relates to them, feels about them, and teaches them, really, because I see him as um, not just a, uh, a ne'er-do-well rocker with an incredible genius for words and music, but also as a kind of figure of uh, wisdom, uh, or even what we might call prophecy, in terms of being able to frame for us what matters in life and give it to us in a way that we can hear it. Okay, right. So, which definitely brings us in many ways into the heart of the book. So, you write at some point that you're not going to fiddle with Dylan and Jewish mysticism, nor the Jewish elements of Dylan's own personal story, which maybe there was like a little bit later on that I that I caught, but. You you just hinted toward this, but if you had to encapsulate the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan, if you had to, in in a few sentences, or more than a few sentences, what would it be? What is the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan? I was amazed um, that I actually found an answer that I didn't expect in this huh. uh, in answering this question. Actually. Um, I'm not fiddling around with my answer here. This actually happened to me, and I remember when it happened, and um, I had a couple um, close friends who are uh, writers and in the world of music, and I shared it with them when it happened. And essentially, um, I was stuck uh, in the book and um, wasn't sure that I had 
found an answer to the question. And then it sort of came to me as a question, which is the question from Like a Rolling Stone, 1965, Like a Rolling Stone, up until recently was voted by the biblical uh, scribes at uh, Rolling Stone magazine, named after the song, Like yes. a Rolling Stone, right? That, that was the number one song of the top songs of rock and roll. Uh, it, it, it asks again, Dylan asks again and again in the song, how does it feel? How does it feel? And How the answer. Does it feel? That's right. Yeah. You, you, you nailed it. <laughs> that's right. Listen to you. It is the question of our time, and the answer is the story of why Dylan matters. And to me, I would even boil it down into one word, and the word is empathy. The word is empathy. I believe that Dylan's uh, spiritual wisdom can be boiled down to empathy. Huh. That's what I call it. Yeah. Wow, that was not what I expected you to say. And it's funny, I, uh, I've i been reading the book over the last few days mm-hmm. in preparation for this conversation. And I assume you write that somewhere. Yeah. But I'm not sure that I saw it quite written in quite with that quite that amount of clarity. It comes in the in the final, I'd say, I don't know, the final fifth of the book. Oh, okay. That's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, and I and I try to wrap it up, and I I was thinking a lot about um, some really important work that's been done recently by um, Daphne Brooks, who's at Yale now, who writes about Black feminist critique and Black feminist music. Um, Catherine Lofton, who's 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 also at Yale, who writes about um, about cultural appropriation and uh, white musicians and black musicians and the whole themes of electricity and race. Going back to this pivotal moment where Dylan quote unquote goes electric right around the time of Like a Rolling Stone at the Newport Folk Festival sort of famously and really tried to suss, you know, um, what is next if there's an age of rock and roll, which maybe is past by definition because we have classic rock by you know, the 80s, we already are talking about classic rock. They were all alive, the ones who survived, right? Alive and performing. And, and reinventing themselves. Dylan and Paul Simon and Neil Young. And, and, uh, and then there's a whole next generation, the next and the next. But basically, as I tried to bring the book to some form of a conclusion, or at least some sort of um, speculation about where music goes, um, it really became clear to me that the rhetorical questions that Dylan asks, and he does ask really classic rhetorical questions, like how does it feel, like the question of how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man, right? Uh, blown in the yeah, wind. Yeah, right. Um, it is about creating a space to actually experience life within a framework, with a good question, with other people, to actually make something new by repeating the question over and over again. So to me, um, the process of, process of writing the book actually renewed a little of my faith in rock and roll a little bit because I understood that amongst the many things that rock and roll does, it is a story of intimate moments that a musician is sharing with the masses, right? So Dylan's sharing his internal life. Um, any, any musician of the genre is sharing their internal life and they're sharing it with the masses, and you experience alone with your your earbuds or on your record player or whatever age and media you use, and yet you're sharing it with millions of people. Um, 
everyone is being asked how do they feel. Everyone's feeling something when they encounter music and the ways that music gets shared amongst people. Sometimes we aren't even conscious of how that's happening, but it is this incredible vehicle for empathy. And I think Dylan is one of the catalysts in bringing that to the masses in popular culture. You're reminding me of the section. I love this section. I actually pulled it out to read it uh, about the popular music pilgrimage, the gathering at a concert. I was also a uh, a frequent concert attendee <laughs> in my in my day. So here, I'm just going to read it. Um, I hope I get it all right because I did. I did write it over here on my notes. Those. Show parking lots look like a... It's not show parking lots, but the parking lots look like a temporary village of pilgrims gathered for preparatory ablutions outside of an oracle or temple, everyone chanting the liturgy of favorite songs from encampment to encampment, car stereo to boombox, hunt, mate, rage, get lost. It all happened to add a rock concert, a place of learning many secrets under the not watchful eyes of the musicians who had brought everyone together, which of course was the scene of for me in the eighties, very, you know, frequently. Um, and hopefully for many people, not for my husband, but for many people that I, (laughs) that I know and love. It's not too late. And it's not too late. I know. I keep on telling him that, but, and then, but, well, I don't know. I don't know. Is it the same anymore? That's, that's number one question. The, the Mm. scene in the parking lot, does it happen in the same way? It's been a long time since I've been in that scenario, at least in the States. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff, the author of About Man and God and Law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. We're back with Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Yeah, he's just relaunched his quote-unquote never-ending tour, and uh, it's booked for the next three years. It's booked through 2024. And he's 80... He's 81. He'll be 81 on May 24th. Oh, the timing is very nice. Yeah, it matches one of the birthdays of one of my kids, I have to say, who was so (laughs) kind and funny to choose to be born. Uh, I'll obviously, you know... Um, the the Ema had mother the mother had a lot to do with it too and she did the work but the kid you know decided when to come out I think and it was on Bob Dylan's birthday which is kind of amazing for someone who's so interested in Dylan but he's at the age of almost eighty one planning to be on tour for at least another two and a half years 
But what does Tora mean for him these days? What what do concerts mean for him? It means that he's out there. He's out there in spurts of uh, 15 to 20, 25 dates, essentially in a row. Um, he could do 100 dates a year. I think the average at the peak of the never-ending tour was something like 90 shows a year. Um, and we're talking about for, for, for more than two decades. Wow. And these are what size... Are we, what are we talking about? Are we talking about smaller venues, larger venues? He plays some festivals, but it's um, varied. There were two summers where he only played, get this, minor league stadiums, minor league baseball stadiums, <laughs> only minor league ba- baseball stadiums, all right? So, you know you know where minor leagues are not located typically in, in L.A., no. Chicago, New York, and Miami. They're, they're in small towns. Yeah. Um, he was. He would be on tour with uh, John Cougar Mellencamp, and Dylan would tour only minor league stadiums. Willie Nelson and Dylan. I saw Dylan and Willie Nelson play in Cooperstown, New York, at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Baseball Hall uh, of Fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, field. He plays uh, the outdoor shells. He plays um, theater style concerts like uh, the Beacon uh, or the Capitol Theater in, in you know in Manhattan and outside of New York. Um, but he also plays uh, in larger venues. He'll play at Madison Square Garden. So it's really a mix. And um, how many times have you seen him perform? Oh gosh, probably maybe twenty times. I would say okay. probably. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's, a dedicated that's fan, one could call you. Yes, but definitely not in the rankings of the numbers of times that people who are really dedicated have seen Dylan. I mean, there's a whole world of people. They're called Bobcats, right? And right. they have seen Dylan hundreds of times, right? Hundreds of times. So but they may not have written a book. So they might okay. not have written a book, but they will certainly tell me all the mistakes I made in the book. I can promise you, <laughs> social media is full of them. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Right, right. There's must you must be kind of butterflies in the stomach about when this thing is actually out there, and uh... Uh, yeah, but you know, not so much. My goal, my goal in writing the book was absolutely not to prove in any way that I knew more or less than anybody else. I wasn't interested in actually writing a book that was too concerned about linear history, the chronology of Dylan, you know, what he ate for breakfast, what religious practices he takes on. As you mentioned, I was interested in what it means and really recognize that ultimately uh, I can associate what I think it means to all kinds of other people and many of them, you know, much more knowledgeable and engaged in, in different fields than I am. But at the end of the day, this was my attempt to provide a framework for experiencing Dylan deeply, for experiencing rock and roll in a different way, and really trying to make a case, which I think um, will be an interesting one to talk with, you know, friends and colleagues about for a long time, about how rock and roll is um, uh, a framework that provides spirituality and religious ritual experience and is a meaning-making machine for millions and millions of people who don't get that from religion. They get that from music. They get that from culture. Okay, so then spinning off of that, uh, in your work, in your professional life, you deal Mm -hmm. a lot with Judaism and Jews and people who are following religious practice. Um, And as you've mentioned, you also had a long period of your life where you were a musician, a professional musician, Mm -hmm. and you clearly are living these two streams, right? Mm. Was it hard for you to resist? I mean, you obviously, you you bring up Midrash, 
You you bring up other Jewish aspects of your own life or thinking, but was it hard for you to stay away from finding more of a connection between Dylan and his Jewish background, his birth? Well, first of all, you know, I didn't shy away at all and, and never would from his deep Christian roots as well, both culturally mm-hmm. and during a period of time where he really um, engaged full on with evangelical Christianity. And who's to say if he isn't still engaged with it? It's very hard, I think, to be a musician who's immersed in um, in blues and in gospel and also in um, sort of Americana formative country music without being immersed in Christianity. Right. Um, so that's that's key for him, just like it's key for Paul Simon uh, or anybody else who comes of age uh, as a musician. I do think that um, Dylan is a uh, a genius who is um, defined in certain ways by an incredible um, memory for what he hears, reads, uh, sees in the world. And um, part of the process that he uh, enters, and he talked about that in his uh, Nobel Prize uh, acceptance speech, which he recorded when he didn't attend the ceremony. Right, right. Um, I do remember is, that. Right. So how does he reproduce um, the content that goes into that machine, into his mind, uh, of make that makes music? Um, in recent years, there's been a lot more controversy around Dylan as a plagiarist, as someone who's really... Um, actually taking content and simply reproducing it as his own in a slightly different form. Um, That may be the folk tradition always being that way. I think there's a pretty strong case for that. Um, It's a little different when you're a, you know, a white male reproducing uh, the sounds or the lyrics of uh, someone who perhaps doesn't have the privilege, right, to reproduce Mm -hmm. on the stage Mm -hmm. that Dylan can. That's a thing. Sure, that's a thing. But um, end of the day, Judaism and Jewish texts are in the mix because there's incredible wisdom in Judaism, right? Uh, The classic texts of the Jewish tradition are classic texts not just because they appeal to Jews, but because they are appealing texts. They were so appealing to certain Jews that Christianity developed out of that. And that is deeply rooted within the whole question of where is Dylan in the scale of, you know, Judeo-Christian belief, practice, text, whatever. To me, it doesn't matter. To me, what matters is that he's an artist who expresses in a contemporary voice through a contemporary lens the great questions that seekers and prophets and seers have always been asking, going all the way back as far as we can go back uh, with culture and religion. What was the toughest question that might have come up about as a result of writing the book, besides trying to figure out the answer. But in other words, what were some unexpected things? You go into a subject, you go into a book, you know a lot about the subject, you obviously have research to do as well. Was there anything that really struck you as, wow, I did not expect to learn that or to think about this that way? Well, that's a great question. I I did get stuck in certain points when I was thinking about uh, Dylan as a student I have a chapter on student and teacher. Uh, I talk a, about Dylan and Woody Guthrie or Johnny Cash or even Lenny Bruce, like people that he has publicly and creatively admired, um, and ask the question, well, how could it be that someone who has been such a 
great student and has been mentored by so many, who did he teach? Do who, does he have students? Does he have disciples? You know, um, where in the system is that? Or is he like the Rebbe who refuses to have, you know, any students? Um, that was one. And the other one was really um, around um, sort of contemporary issues of race and feminism and where to put this guy who, on the one hand, seems to be a quote-unquote ally to um, the disempowered or the underempowered um, or people who don't have the same kind of privilege, if we could say it that way. Um, what does it mean that um, he is really um, a musician who is, uh, just like me, you know, a white Jewish male? Um, and in our world right now, um, it's, it's not exactly the platform that one would want to be on to be most current, right, with saying something that matters. Um, so how does it feel is an amazing question in the 60s when boys will be boys and it's totally accepted. It's very different in 2022 where it's not acceptable to, you know, take in all that power and all that access um, as, a, as, a, as a white man, right? Particularly one who is um, living really well off of music that's inherited by people of color, uh, women, what have you. So that was a tough one for me. And, and for that, I really had to lean into some some friends and colleagues, you know, um, who um, have done a lot of work on that. And, uh, and those themes of, uh, you know, appropriation, empowerment, and so on, and kind of get a little bit of permission, maybe, to, to, to still state what I wanted to say about Dylan and, uh, and to be, uh, I don't know, you might call it a chevruta, you know, sort of study partners. <laughs> study partners. Um, and uh, the study partner element, the chevruta apartment, uh, par- portion, um, helped me get comfortable that there was a reason to have one more of the hundreds more, right, book about this guy. Huh. Right, not easy when you there's this icon and you're you're delving into it and you find the things that you don't necessarily love or sure. you're delving further into that. Not fun. There's plenty. There's plenty in there not to love as much as there is to love, but uh one of the uh I think powerful elements of of popular music and I think that's probably true of our world of celebrity as it exists today is that the imperfections are not hidden. Um, the imperfections of brokenness that Dylan um, describes in himself, like most great artists, are um, uh, glaring portraits of human imperfection, which is one of the reasons why I think he can ask the question, how does it feel? Because he's showing you that it feels bad sometimes, really bad. Sometimes it feels amazing. Sometimes it feels beautiful. Um, but it changes and it's unpredictable. And uh, just because, you know, this guy has, I don't know, 15 houses and a castle in Scotland doesn't mean that he's not suffering along as a human being, just like everybody else. And I think that's beautiful. I think the fact that he stayed in the game and is still talking about love and heartbreak and America and race and JFK's assassination and Martin right. Luther King and, you know, the, the, these are these are, I think, a great tribute. Um, he's not sitting back writing and complaining about the fact that, you know, his, um, you know, castle is not being taken care of by the servants. He's still in the <laughs> thick of it as a human, you know? Right. We don't, right. And that's the other thing about Dylan is that uh, 
the concept of social media and uh, celebrityhood are not mm-hmm. things that he has really ever delved into in a, in a you know he's stayed far away from it um yeah. whereas many others have not and you know it's easy to always scoff at celebrityhood and what people bring upon themselves when they put their lives out there on the other hand you get to know them in a different way or maybe you do right do we ever really know anyone and that's always the feeling you when you have someone that like Dylan who is such an icon people want to feel like they know him and uh, and on one hand, as you're pointing out, you get to know him through his songs. But on the other hand, do you really? Yeah, it's a funny one. It's a really that's a really interesting way to put it, Jessica. Because you know, there's this there's this theme that I tuck, touch on where, um, in in a song, uh, Dylan writes called Lenny Bruce. He calls Lenny Bruce the comic who um, you know was a, a kind of genius, another Jewish genius in this particular case, who really. Um, got lost in drugs and frustration, and um, he really was a groundbreaking comic for issues of censorship and what we could talk about. Um, and Dylan calls him the brother that you never had uh, in that song. And uh, when Bruce Springsteen was asked to induct Bob Dylan into the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Springsteen described Dylan as the brother that you never had. And um, I don't feel at all like Dylan's a brother. Um, he feels almost alien in a certain way because he's such a, um immense presence creatively in our world. Yeah. Untouchable in many ways. But at the same ways, time, yeah. he does find ways to help you be <laughs> a better brother, right? Um, it's about ways that a great musician can actually enhance the ways we can be um, better people, you know, more intimate with the people that matter to us. Um, And ultimately, I think that rock and roll has been, like, created this world of our imaginary friends in a way that um, didn't exist before because think about it, you know, 100 years ago, it would be very uncommon for you to have anything out loud except what was being said or played in the room with you. You couldn't have other voices in the room. But, you know, when you and I came of age, and certainly, you know, in the age when our parents came of age, and and our grandparents as well, certainly, um, there were voices in the room with us. Um, We weren't alone. We weren't alone because we had Joni Mitchell, you know, and Jimi Hendrix, and Bob Dylan, and Elton John, and then we had, you know, Tracy Chapman, and we had Kurt Cobain, and Beyonce, and now we have Adele, and we have, um, we have great friends, right, around all the time, (laughs) and they're, and they're talking to us whenever we want. It's kind of an amazing shift for humanity. Okay, so who's the next book about? Oh, the next book, that's a, that's, that's a question that, uh, you know, many in our community of one have been debating here. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you what, I, I um, had an idea to do another book about rock and roll called The Rock and Roll Empire, but I, I'm kind of backing down from that. I actually have two novels. Um, one of them's in the can. It's about football. and uh-huh. Football, um, American I'm, football. I'm, American football. It's called Take a Knee. Uh, I may go back to that, but the other one 
is one that I kind of started when I took a break from this book, and it is about a kind of failed rock and roller who's going to make a big comeback. So that could be the one. That could be the one. I see the Netflix series already. I mean... Yeah, I'm glad glad (laughs) that someone does. (laughs) We'll be back. We'll be back for the conversation about the... uh, that book. It's called Mistake on the Lake because this rock and roll story takes place in Cleveland where I'm from. And Cleveland is known to some, but was known to many Mm. as the Mistake on the Lake. But I'm here to say, you know... um, You're from there and you're proud of it. it, Well, I didn't have a choice. I'm part of the Cleveland diaspora, okay? But uh, in thinking about um, why I got so interested in rock and roll, a lot of it has to do with the fact that Uh, Cleveland had this incredible uh, radio station called WMMS when I was a kid. And it really was um, the great station of, you know, contemporary rock and roll. And that's why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. So um, that 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 for those of us looking for a comparison, that was my, uh, you know, uh, Yavne or um, Jerusalem or whatever the capital of learning was for rock and roll. It was Cleveland for a while. Mm. Yeah. All right. Go Cleveland. All right. Yeah. I hear you. Cleveland rocks. You know the tune. Absolutely. I'm not going to sing it though. One song. One song a session. I guess you've reached your quota. It was just you know four words. Uh, Maybe it was five. (laughs) But Stephen Arnoff, it has been a pleasure to have you here on Times Will Tell. We're really happy to have spoken to you and. So let's just go over what's that about man and God and law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan coming out in May, May 3rd, I believe May you said. 3rd is the publication date available wherever fine books are sold and people want more of the podcast. I do a lot of appearances and uh, scholar residencies and so on, mangodlaw.com. Okay, we will link to that website for for sure. And as for you, Times Will Tell listeners, We'll be back on Sunday with the Daily Briefing. See you then. Bye, Stephen. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our Daily Briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.